0: And uh, turn with me to verse 22. We're going to read verses 22 through 41. Verses 22 through 41 of Acts chapter 2. I will maybe introduce this by saying this is Paul's sermon, Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon the apostles and they preached in the tongues of all sorts of people. And they heard. And so this is Peter's defense of Jesus Christ and what was going on in that day. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning of him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make Thy foes, thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come unto thee in this time of preaching, we ask that thy spirit might descend upon us, that we might receive thy word and understand it. Now wouldst give to us a better understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well long time ago, an old English uh, writer by the name of William Shakespeare asked an interesting question. What's in a name? What's in a name? And then he said, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. By this statement, Shakespeare states that the importance of a person or a thing comes from the way that it is, not by what it is called. Simply put, it means the names of things don't really affect what they actually are. Names to Shakespeare are simply identifiers. Identifiers for a person, a place or a thing, just a label to distinguish one person from another, one thing from another. It doesn't have any worth in and of itself, nor does it give any true meaning. Only an individual in Shakespeare's thinking has a thing or a thing has worth when it deserves it. So, for example, if we call a rose by an entirely different name, it would still smell the same way, because the name doesn't give it its smell. Well, this is often how we view names today as well, isn't it? In general, our names are simply labels, arbitrary words which are intended to identify a person, a place, or a thing. There is a sense, however, boys and girls, maybe the names that you have are not entirely arbitrary. Right? Maybe your parents named you, uh, gave you a name that was a family name. Maybe they gave you a name that sounded a certain way. Maybe, if they're like me, they like the way it looked in cursive. I know, silly, arbitrary. Maybe the name that you have was a reflection of what they hoped you would be. And oftentimes I think we'd kind of do that in our church. We give names to our children as a reflection of the things we love, we value, and we hope that you are. Um, but in any any case, they're not prophetic. They don't, they don't say what you will be. And your parents did pick them for their reasons, not for some greater purpose, really. <clears throat> but, you know, not all names are arbitrary. In fact, in the Bible, names are something more than arbitrary labels. They describe a person. They describe a place. They describe a thing. And what they do is they indicate the essential character and nature of of that to which the name is given. If you think about this with me, think of what we've learned in Genesis already. Um, how did Adam name the animals in Genesis two? According to their nature, he gave them a name that reflected what they really were. Adam also named his wife Eve. Why? Just because he liked the name? No. It means Eve means living, and he names her Eve because she's the mother of all the living people in the earth. Further, sometimes biblical names are prophetic. They can be assigned by God for his reasons. We learned about that in Genesis 5, didn't we? God assigned the name Methuselah to Methuselah to testify that when he died, death would come. Noah is a given the name rest by God. Why? Because he's picturing the rest that comes to the godly when God judges the wicked, right? These are prophesying an event. Sometimes these names can prophesy a function. All right? Maybe you're thinking of a few names. One that comes to mind for me is a prophetic name. Is God changed Abram's name to Abraham because this guy who didn't have any kids was going to be the father of a multitude. Right? His name's changed with a prophetic function. Or how about Jesus giving Saul... The name Paul. Well, you think. Well, what does that? What does that really mean? Well, Paul's a Roman name. Saul's an, a a Jewish name. Who is Paul an apostle to? The Gentiles. Jesus gives Paul a Gentile name to as a as a prophetic uh, aspect of what he would be as a uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And this, brothers and sisters, is also true of our Redeemer's name. Of our Redeemer's name. Our Redeemer became a man, right? Our Redeemer is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who was and has always been God. But he took on human flesh and became a man. And as a human being, he was given a personal name. We know that name to be Jesus. It was a name he was given as a boy. As we shall see, they didn't call him Jesus. That was not, he, wasn't, he didn't have an English name. He had an Aramaic name, more likely, that was used. But this name, Jesus, in its English form, was the name he answered to and his parents called. He was a real boy with a real name, and he answered to that personal name. As he grew, he became known as uh, Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth, as we saw Peter call him in his sermon. Though unknown to people in his day, although to a select few they knew, this personal name Jesus was not arbitrary, was it? We know that. It was prophetic. It was given by God to describe his character, his office, his function. Not simply an arbitrary label. He wasn't given a label because Mary liked the way it sounded or Joseph thought, I want him to be this certain person. It was given to him by God for a reason. What's more is our Redeemer has more than just a personal name. He has an official title. And boys and girls, you know that title already, probably without even realizing it. If you've memorized Shorter Catechism, question 21, it tells us the official title of Jesus. The question in question 21 is, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? If you know it, you can say it with me. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be, God and man, in two distinct natures, but one person forever. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the official title. The combination of the personal name Jesus and the titles Lord and Christ For our Redeemer are often used in Scripture to describe His official office, His official character, His official mission, and His official function as the only Redeemer of God's elect. Did you know that the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, is used 84 times together in the New Testament? 84 times. The Apostle Paul loved this title as an introduction to his epistles. Do you know how many epistles Paul wrote? Thirteen. Do you know how many times he introduces his epistles with the Lord Jesus Christ? 13. Um, As an example, Romans 1 7. This is how Paul would formulate it. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 1 3. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his introduction formula very often. And in this apostolic greeting of Paul, we see something very important about this title. He's equal with God. He's equal with God. And because you can see his equality with God the Father in that title, you know it's a divine title. It's a title that describes the fact that our Redeemer is God. Now, how do you know it's a divine title? Or well, where does divine grace and peace proceed from? From God. And who does Paul say it proceeds from? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's made equal with God. You see, the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, testifies above all else to the deity of the person whom history often describes as Jesus of Nazareth, whom Pilate called the king of the Jews, whom the Jews would call rabbi, whom the Muslims would call a great prophet, and whom the religious leaders of his day called blasphemer, and his disciples called master. You see, the, Lord, the title of the Lord Jesus Christ testifies that he is not just a man in the sense that those people knew him. Of the 13 epistles, the Apostle Paul uses this title also in the benediction in his farewell 11 times. He doesn't do it in every one, but 11 times. But in those in those farewell benedictions, he will often formulate it this way, as in Romans 16, 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Or Galatians 6, 18. Brethren... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Notice here that the Redeemer is set by himself. Right? So we're still in the context of Paul uh, showing the equality of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Father. But we see here that the Redeemer is assumed and asserted to be by Paul, God himself. And that grace flows to us from Christ himself. In Acts 2, now turning back to our passage. In Acts chapter 2, we see that these titles are brought together by Peter. They're brought together by Peter so that we might know that the man with the personal name Jesus of Nazareth was more than just a man, but that God had set the incarnate Son of God apart from all other men to be the only Redeemer of God's elect. That's That's what Peter is saying here in this chapter. In verse 22, look at verse 22. Turn to it, Acts 2, 22. Ye men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. This is no mere man. This is a man approved by God. By what? Miracles and signs and wonders. If you go to verses 32 and 33, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And this is the Spirit poured out upon, upon these men, these apostles, to preach powerfully in different languages. Right. This is, this is God testifying that this risen Jesus was more than just a man. And then in verse 36, he builds, he builds it up He crescendos in his sermon to, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. We see here that the Father is pleased to ordain and establish the Lord Jesus Christ as our only Redeemer, just as he had promised in the Old Testament. And Peter's sermon draws on the Old Testament. Why? Why? Because that's the scripture that he had. But for our sakes, let's, let's just draw out and remind ourselves where we might see this. We, we see this establishment of, of Christ, our Redeemer, uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 42.1. Isaiah 42.1, where Isaiah, speaking of the Redeemer to come, shows that the Father describes him as his elect the one decreed to take upon him the function of bringing judgment to the Gentiles. There Isaiah says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. God the Father raises up the Son, described as a servant, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This is taught in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, you remember, You remember that phrase, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, what's being said there, what's being taught in Psalm 110 is the Lord God the Father says to my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand with authority and power. That's what it means to be at the right hand of the Father. You function as his right hand, right? You have the authority of him. Speaking of the greater son of David, you could turn to Psalm 89. In verses 20 and 36 to 37, the Holy Spirit declares that the Redeemer would be anointed. He would be established in his office as a ruling and reigning Redeemer, being anointed and established upon an everlasting throne. Psalm 89 is important because it's that Davidic covenant. And and who was David? The king. And he was a type of Christ. He pictured Christ in the Old Testament as one that had been anointed by God with authority. And David pictured Jesus Christ to come. Of course, we have have this in the New Testament as well. What did the angel tell Mary in Luke chapter 1? Call his name Jesus in verse 31. For he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. See, God gives unto Jesus Christ this, this reign, this, this role, this office of Redeemer. Jesus himself claims this. He claims this for himself, like in John 5. As the Father hath life in himself, John 5, 26, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And remember that name, Son of Man, that's actually an Old Testament name. That's the the name from Daniel that prophesied that the the Messiah would come, the Son of Man would come, and so Jesus says, I am the Son of God, and I am that Son of Man. Note in these passages that Jesus is asserting his divine nature. It's very important. Our Redeemer is God. Our Lord, throughout his ministry. Earlier in chapter 5, he asserts it. He shows that although he is sent and appointed unto the office of the Redeemer by the Father, he is in fact equal to the Father. He is God and has a right to take up the divine office of the Redeemer. Okay, So that's an introduction to the idea that Jesus is our Redeemer. He's a divine Redeemer. And so you might ask, why? Do we need to talk about this? Well, one of the reasons why I thought is that as we're going through the book of Luke, it would be good to draw together some of these concepts about the Jesus that we have been learning about in his official title. Also, studying the names and the title of our Redeemer provides important insight into his nature, into his character, into who he is as our Savior, as our Redeemer. We want to fill up our knowledge with the right understanding of who Jesus is. We want to press beyond just this cursory knowledge. You know, many times today, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is, we emphasize very often the humanity of Christ, the neglect of his divinity, and they all come together in this title, Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, you know, cults and heresies often profess a Jesus. There's often, it's easy to wrongly think about Jesus but, you know, only Orthodox Christianity confesses the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And you can't separate those from each other in our thinking about him. We must know who this Lord Jesus Christ is. And also, you know, we want to maintain his dignity, don't we? We don't want to have low and mean thoughts of him. We want high thoughts. And finally, we want to respond to this Redeemer. We want to respond to him as he has revealed himself. Think of what happened back in Acts 2. Look at verse 37. In Acts 2, 37. What was the response to Peter's assertion that the Jesus of Nazareth that they had killed was both Lord and Christ? What does it say? They were pricked in the heart. Boys and girls, you know what that means? They were pierced to the heart. Like, it, put, it slayed them. It put them to death. Right? They, were, they were cast down. They were, they were driven down to their knees like you would if you got an arrow through the heart. They knew they were dead men, that they were guilty, and they needed to be saved from their sin. And and what happened then that day? 3,000 learned of this Christ, of this Lord Jesus Christ, and, and were converted. I'm after today a proper response to this Jesus Christ when you know about him. That's what we're after. It's not enough to simply have a knowledge of the Redeemer. You must own Him as your Redeemer. You must trust Him as your Redeemer. You must love Him and, and, and apply yourself to Him. Our goal in this sermon is to examine these three names and to try to come away with a proper response to each one. So the question today is, what effect does the title of your, of your Redeemer have upon your soul? What effect does that have upon your soul? Let's start with the name Jesus. That's the first name He's given. It's his personal name. So the name which we pronounce as Jesus is the English translation of the Hebrew name Yehoshua. Yehoshua. And it had a similar Aramaic pronunciation. So they, most of the people in Jesus' day spoke Aramaic. So when they said Yehoshua, Hebrew Yehoshua in Aramaic, it was Yehoshua. Yehoshua. Just It's just short, but very similar So what does Yehoshua mean? Well, Yehoshua is kind of a a contraction of two words, meaning Yahweh is salvation. Yehoshua is Yahweh is salvation. So you can see in the naming of Jesus, call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Simply, it means Savior. Sometimes they would shorten it to Savior. Yahweh, as you will recall, is that name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, right? He gave Moses that name to identify himself to the people in Egypt, saying, I am your God, and I am faithful to my covenant. And so oftentimes that name, Yahweh, is used or called and described as the covenantal name of God. The covenantal name of God. The name Yehoshua, then, Yahweh is salvation, is a, has a special meaning related to God saving his people, to God being faithful to his covenant. It, it's a name which describes the unimpeded election and salvation of God's people, that, that salvation that he brings through his covenant. Now, you know this name in English, but you know it in a different form. Yehoshua, most properly translated, is Joshua. 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 So Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. So you say, well, how did we get Jesus out of Yehoshua? Well, it's kind of complicated, and there's some twists and turns. The name Jesus comes to us through the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The English name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, is the anglicized version of the Greek name Iesus. So like if you read... The Bible in Greek and you came to the name Jesus, it would say Iesus. Jesus is that transliteration of that Greek Iesus. So there's a jump right from, from Iesus to Jesus. The name Yehoshua is most properly translated Iesus in the Greek. But why do we why do we say Jesus instead of Joshua? Well, it's to distinguish this particular Jesus from all the other Joshua's. But the name means the same thing. The bottom line is that Jesus and Joshua are the same name and have the same meaning. And it's the meaning that is most important to us when we think about him. We're not concerned with the pronunciation of the letters J-E-S-U-S. We love the name because it means something to us. It's what the name means. It's what Jesus means, or Joshua, or Iesus, or Yehoshua means in any language that is most important. And Jesus was named Yahweh is salvation. And he is named that. Why in Matthew 21? Because he would save his people from their sins. Although Jesus of Nazareth, was as he was known in his day, is the personal name. Jesus is itself a prophetic divine title. Yehoshua was very popular among the Hebrews, but there was only one Yehoshua who was given that name with a meaning that said he would save his people from their sin. Notice that in this name we see that only Jesus is the Savior. In this part of the title of the Redeemer, we, we can pull that only Redeemer out, right? There is only one person who saves his people from their sins, and that is this Jesus. There's, a, there's an identification or there's a covenant solidarity in that name, isn't there? Do you see yourself as, as one of Jesus' people that he would save, as one of those people in the covenant who Yahweh is salvation for? In the name Jesus, you need to see yourself as one of those people for whom he came to die and to save. Not just as a man. Yahweh is salvation. Not not a man is salvation. Not just a good guy. Not just Joshua from the Old Testament. But uh, Yahweh is salvation. And there's only one person who, when he was a man, was also God. And that is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And the Gospels are replete, and they're filled up with teaching us that Jesus is God. And, and there's one passage in particular that I go to, would remind you of, it's John 20. John, in, in the book, it's kind of a summary of the book. John does not give a chronological description of the entire life of Jesus, but he says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his, of his disciples, which were not written in the book. But these that are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing he might have life through his name. It is through the divine power of our Redeemer's mediation and us being united to him in that great love that we are given life. The idea from John of having life through his name, it describes the identity that you have in being named with him right? What's the importance of baptism? You have Christ's name placed upon your forehead. You are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. It's that identity with Yahweh salvation through which our salvation comes. And you can see this title throughout, throughout the Bible. Uh, you're not going to find the name Jesus in that title in the Old Testament, but you will find its function. And you will find his Hebrew name brought together in Exodus 15, 2. Let me read it for you. The Lord is my strength and song. He is become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him in habitation. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is become my salvation is the bringing together of the Hebrew. Yahweh is salvation. They were singing of Christ. In Exodus 15. The Psalms express this title. Over 42 times. In bringing those together. Psalm 27.1. It says the Lord is my light. And my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is my salvation. Psalm 38.22. Make haste to help me. O Lord my salvation. You You could read that. Make haste to help me. Jesus, Yehoshua. Psalm 89, 26 expresses the title of Jesus by being the rock of my salvation. Psalm one 14, we're going to see this this evening, is, is virtually the same as Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. You see, the Old Testament believer looked forward to the salvation of the Lord and saw Jesus in his function, the real meaning of Yahoshua, of Jesus. The Gospels, too, display that Jesus of Nazareth was no mere man, and the the apostles expand on it, and that's what you have in Acts chapter 2. Peter connects this name, Jesus, with the only way of salvation, Right? Yehoshua, Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the savior of his people and there's none other. For Later on in Acts, in chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says, there is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Is it just the name J-E-S-U-S that saves or is it because he is Yahweh is salvation that his name is redemption, right? It's it's the meaning behind the name. Peter, in that passage in Acts 4, quotes from Psalm 118. And he shows that Jesus is in fact the salvation of Yahweh, that there is no other name. He alone is the one who identifies himself with his people. There is no other Jesus that says, I am the Savior of my people. It's unique. So let's ask the question. What is your response to this Jesus? There is only one Savior, one God come in the flesh. There is only one Yahweh who is salvation. What is your response to that Savior? Do you see him as your Savior? Do you want to know him as your Savior? Let's move to the term Christ. Christ. Christ is the English form of the Greek word Christos. Christos. And it's a, it has an Old Testament equivalent. Christos has an Old Testament equivalent. Anybody know what it is? Anybody guess? Messiah, Which we understand in English to be Messiah. Christos. Christ. Messiah. Those are all the same word. The term Messiah brings to us all of those Old Testament images of those types of Christ as, as a prophet and of a priest and of a king. Why would I bring those offices up? Well, let's think about it. The word Christ, the word Messiah, mean, has the same meaning in Hebrew, Greek, and English, and it means Anointed. Anointed. Think about the offices in Old Testament Israel. What did you do with a king when you established him on the throne? You anointed him. What did you do when a priest took up his office as a priest? You anointed him. What was Elijah told to do in 1 Kings 19 to Elisha when he was going to establish him as a prophet? He was told to go anoint him. You see, when we consider our Redeemer as Christ, we consider him as anointed in his three offices, as prophet, priest, and king. See, this is what Paul Peter is referring to in Acts 2.36 when he describes Jesus as being made Christ. The Father has set him apart, anointed him to be your prophet, to be your priest, and to be your king. Since salvation is of the Lord and not of man, it is essential that our Redeemer be given all the power, all the authority, all the ability to execute the redemption. Right? What if Jesus was a Redeemer that was lacking in something? Where would your salvation be? Empty, worthless, incomplete. But Jesus is a Redeemer who has been fully furnished with everything he needs to execute The offices required of the Redeemer. As a prophet, Jesus brings to us what? His word. And by his word and spirit, what do we know? What is required for salvation? As a priest, and boys and girls, I'm just going through those catechism questions here. As a priest, what does Jesus do? He offers himself as a sacrifice. He reconciles us to God. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us. Notice in this office that there is no conception of the Messiah without suffering, death, and humiliation. That concept of Christ brings with it the idea of Messiah, which means Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the one who humbled himself unto death, who sacrificed himself for those people he would save. As a king, what does our Jesus Christ do? He subdues us to himself because we're born as enemies. He, he rules us because we're, we're unruly. We need to be, be put in line. He conquers all of his enemies and ours. Do you see the overlap that is necessary between the name Jesus and the name Christ? You see why you can't separate those two? Because there needs to be a covenantal identification between you and the one who does all the work as a prophet, priest, and king. Our Savior must be our anointed prophet in order for us to be saved. Because we need to know the will of God. We need the Spirit shed forth in our hearts. Our Savior must be our priest in order for us to be saved because we need a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. We need a sacrifice to reconcile us to God. We need union with that priest so that when we come before him in prayer and worship and we live before him, he sees Christ's righteousness and the fulfillment and the sacrifice and the blood that covers us rather than our own wickedness. And he must be our anointed king because we are born enemies of God. And we are not able to love him until he subdues us to himself. Again, within the Old Testament, this is pictured for us again and again. This concept of Messiah to come is woven through the scriptures. Deuteronomy 18, 18. And I'm just going to give you some of these because we are going to run out of time. But Deuteronomy 18, 18 describes a prophet which would be like Moses, but better. Psalm 1104 describes a priest which would be better than Aaron. He would be of the order of Melchizedek. He would be an eternal priest. Psalm 45:6 through7 describes a king, which would be like David, but better.? Right? So in those types, those images, those pictures of the Old Testament, there's always the concept. That this Messiah, this anointed one who's coming, is going to be better than what we see today. Now the New Testament, standing on it from the other side of the cross, right? Those Old Testament believers are looking forward to Christ to come. On this side of the cross, we see the fulfillment of all those promises. Great book to go to, to understand those fulfillments, is the book of Hebrews, right? In in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, we see that Moses was a faithful servant and prophet in the house of God. But Christ is better. He's the fulfillment because he's not just a steward in the house, a caretaker in the house. He's the Lord over the house. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3. In Hebrews 7 and 8, um Speaking about Jesus Christ as a priest, it shows that Jesus is that one who was better than all of those priests of Aaron. And that like Melchizedek, without father, without mother, he's an eternal priest. And this priest, what has he done? He's offered a sacrifice once and sits down. How many times did those priests of Aaron and those Levitical priests have to offer sacrifices? Every time they walk through the gate. Any time they went into the Holy of Holies. And our Lord Jesus Christ is so much better because his divine nature made his sacrifice of infinite value so that it only needed to happen one time. Well, how about a king? How about a king? Does the New Testament show the fulfillment of that? It does. As a king... Hebrews 1, 7-9 shows that there's a fulfillment of what we talked about in Psalm 45, that there would be a better than David. John 12 also describes the fulfillment of the coming of the king. Let me read that for you. This is the triumphal entry. It shows very particularly the fulfillment of Psalm 118. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Sion." Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's The New Testament shows that Jesus is the Christ. Peter says, God has made this Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king. And so the question is, what is your response to this Christ? Do you hear his word as an anointed prophet? And does it affect you? Do you see him as your sacrifice? The one who satisfies the wrath of God that you deserve but he took? Do you see him as your anointed priest? Your anointed mediator? The one who goes between you and God and reconciles you to him? Do you see Christ as your king? Meaning, do you submit to him? Do you seek to please him in everything that you can do to obey his perfect rule with joy and to receive his great provision? What's your response to Christ? And then finally, these get shorter as we go through each one. The term Lord, the name Lord. The title Lord comes from the Greek word kurios, kurios. It has the sense of being in authority, a master of some estate or or some kingdom. When used to address someone of of authority or rank, it has an idea of respect and reverence. When the Old Testament, within the Old Testament, we find these words, right? You read the Old Testament, you find the word Lord. Well, those are one of two words in the Old Testament, Yahweh and Adonai. We talked before about Yahweh having that special covenantal name. And so when, when the Israelites thought of God as the covenantal God, they thought of him as absolute sovereign. Absolute sovereign with special covenantal authority. When they thought of him as Adonai, they thought of him as the one who ruled over all things. Adonai or Yahweh. In the context of the application to our Redeemer, the title Lord refers to all of that supreme dignity, all of that authority to which the Redeemer alone is entitled. He alone has won the victory. He alone has saved his people from their sins. He alone is the prophet, priest, and king, and so he is Lord. The title, Lord, describes Jesus Christ as the one to whom the Father has given all authority, both in heaven and earth. And isn't this what Christ told his apostles before he ascended up into heaven? In Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. This concept and title of Lord, when applied to Jesus Christ, is a description of the complete sovereignty that he has and denotes that all men and women, all boys and girls, are bound to submit to him as as redeemer. We have an obligation to obey him as redeemer. Yet the wicked cannot, but are obligated to. It is a sin not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond mere sovereign power, when applied to Christ, this title also describes something very comforting and good. He's a provider. He's a protector. He's a tender ruler. And he exercises that provision, protection, and tender rule over his people as a good lord of the manor, as a good lord of the world. Remember that Jesus' name describes salvation for his people, and it's these people which find comfort. It's these people which find provision. It's these people which find protection when this is applied to that personal sovereignty that Jesus has over us, Jesus' rule and care for his people is for the ones he loves. For the ones he loves. And so do you see how it is necessary for Lord and Jesus and Christ to be kept together? Because Jesus as Savior, Jesus as the Christ and Jesus as the Lord all function together as the Redeemer. They're all necessary. You can't pull them apart. It's not like pins in a pincushion that you could still pick, pull a pin out, and the cushion still remains. The Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you take away one of those aspects, He's not any of them. In the Old Testament, the uses of the Lord and allusions to it are many. Um, The Old Testament saints understood the Redeemer to come to be a loving, covenantal, merciful, all-sovereign master, a fortress of safety, a provider. The authorized version, the King James Version of the Bible, translates the word Yahweh and Adonai in conjunction with the concepts of words for salvation and deliverance 57 times, indicating a thorough usage of the name and title of Jesus Christ as Lord. David called Jesus Christ Lord in Psalm 16. This is what Peter referenced in Acts chapter 2. Psalm 3, 7 through 8 combines the name Lord with salvation. Arise, O Lord, save me. Yehoshua is salvation. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Psalm 6, verse 9 ascribes the office of mediator to the Lord. The Lord hath heard My supplication. He's the priest who hears when you pray. Not just the Psalms, but even the Proverbs. Proverbs 18.10, this is a wonderful passage. This describes Jesus Christ as being a fortress of safety. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. The apostles build upon the foundation of the Old Testament and ascribe all power and sovereignty this Redeemer. What did the angels, before the apostles came, what did the angels tell those shepherds in Luke 2? Unto you this day is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He's combined together in all of his titles. Matthew 12 and Mark 2, Jesus claims the, the lordly authority over the Sabbath day. Jesus describes himself as Lord with a, as a divine title. You know what? He lets his followers call him that. That's important to know that Jesus let them do that. And then we come to one of the greatest passages about this particular concept, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. And this is, this is where we're going to finish. So if you could just turn there, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we see the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord by the Father. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. You see the humiliation of the Messiah. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, what do you see in this passage? The connection of all of those names with one Redeemer. One official title, one official office. Now, R.C. Sproul has something very interesting to say about this, regarding the Lord, kurios. He says, if we read the passage too quickly, we may jump to the conclusion that the name that is above every name is, in fact, Jesus. But, in fact, Jesus was a common name the Greek equivalent of Joshua. It is not the name Jesus, which is exalted above every name. It is the title, Kurios, Lord. Jesus is not only Kurios, Lord, but he is Kurios Kurion, meaning Lord of Lords. He is the one to whom all sovereignty in the entire universe has been given by the Father. That is the name by which we express our allegiance, our reverence, and our adoration of Jesus Christ. So when you cry out unto the Lord, you're expressing the allegiance that you are one of his people. So, what is your response to this all-sovereign, all-loving, all-merciful, and all-faithful Lord? The idea of Jesus Christ as Lord requires total submission. There cannot be a concept of receiving Christ as your Savior, as your your sacrifice, as your priest, without submitting to him as Lord. Submission to Jesus Christ as the Lord means that we receive everything in his word to be true, and we believe it. It means that we do everything he requires of us to do with joyful obedience. It means that we trust in him, for the eternal care and provision of our souls. And it means that we take comfort in that provision, not looking for provision somewhere else. Well, in this sermon, we have tried to piece together the official title of your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've shown that his name is not arbitrary, but it comes to him by biblical God-ordained authority, It describes what he is, and it has a precious meaning to us because of what he is and what he does for us. We have endeavored to improve our conceptions of our Redeemer and to fill up our understanding of him. We've seen him in the Old Testament, we've seen him in the New Testament, and we have demonstrated that we must have a whole Redeemer in order to be saved. We must have the entirety of the Lord Jesus Christ leaving nothing out. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus of Nazareth, a real person in history, has been approved of God to be the Savior of his people. He has been made Lord, he has been made Christ, and he has been exalted by God the Father. What is your response? Will you draw near to this Redeemer? Will you find your salvation in him Will you find him to be your prophet, priest, and king? Will you submit to him as Lord and give to him all the reverence, all the respect, all the honor that is due to the Lord? Will you find your hope and comfort in him as your Yahweh saves, as your Savior? If you already trust in him, will you draw closer to him? Endeavoring to learn more of him, conforming yourself more and more to what he is? In a moment, we're going to close the service with singing Psalm 22. In verse 27 of that psalm, it describes the people of the earth remembering the name of the Lord and turning unto him. As we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must turn unto him. And you must return unto him. And you must return unto him again. And again, this is a constant going back in our secret worship, in our devotions, in our family worship, in our prayer time, in our corporate worship, in our day, and the thoughts in our day as we go through our work, we are drawing near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, if you know him, then draw closer. If you do not know him, then as those Jews back in the day of Peter, you stand under the judgment and wrath of God. And you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And you must do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart thinking that like Lamech in, in Genesis, you've got a lifetime to live and God will let you go. After death it comes. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that Thou wouldst indeed give us ears to hear and minds to understand the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for Him, that He is our Savior, that He is our prophet, priest, and King, and that He is the all-supreme and all-caring covenantal Lord. We ask that His name would be glorified in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.